from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. North Korea has been launching missile after missile for the last few weeks, trying to send a message to the West, specifically to the U.S., that it has dangerous weapons. But the question is, would they use those weapons against the U.S.? I strongly believe North Korea and certainly their leadership uh, is not suicidal. That's Ambassador Joe Detrani, a familiar voice on this program. He's the former U.S. Special Representative for the six-party talks with North Korea. Any attack against the United States or an ally uh, or partner, I think, would, uh, would, would uh, generate a, re- a significant response, certainly from the United States. So why does North Korea continue to launch missiles? possibly putting lives at risk? And why does North Korea continue to seem to ignore the U.S. demand for complete, verifiable denuclearization? We'll get the answers to those and more questions coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. In June of 2018, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un met with President Donald Trump in Singapore. They signed a joint statement agreeing to security guarantees for North Korea, new peaceful relations, the complete verifiable denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, recovery of soldiers' remains, and follow-up negotiations between high-level officials. Denuclearization was the key, but North Korea never followed through. Even so, there was a brief period of optimism. Six months later, in November of 2018, North Korea dashed it all by launching another missile and starting a period of back and forth with the U.S. There were letters sent to Mr. Trump, then insults hurled at him and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, then another breakthrough in February of this year, another summit in Hanoi. That one failed miserably. Kim Jong-un has made it clear he's not happy. On May 9th, North Korea began again launching missiles. Between then and August 2nd, at least a half dozen have been launched and followed up with strong warnings to the U.S. and South Korea not to hold any military exercises and urging the U.S. to come back to the negotiating table. But if North Korea hasn't held up its end of the bargain, why would the U.S. want to go back? But can the U.S. afford not to go back to the negotiating table despite North Korea's behavior? Where is this all going to go? What's at stake? Perhaps a better question is, how far will North Korea go? On this program, we talk with Ambassador Joe Detrani. Having sat across the table from the North Koreans, he's probably the best-placed person to explain what's going on and what we can expect. 
Ambassador Detrani, you were a special envoy for the six-party talks with North Korea, right. and you have a deep, long, and a, a very valued experience with dealing with North Korea, and especially their nuclear weapons and, and all of the things that relate to North Korea. The question I'd like to start with is, why are we back here again in the same spot that we've been in so many times in the last 25 years with North Korea? Good question. I think because North Korea doesn't want to give up its nuclear weapons. North Korea wants to be recognized as a nuclear weapons state. Uh, North Korea wants a good, normal, bilateral relationship with the United States and all the benefits that accrue from that type of relationship. North Korea wants to be treated the way the United States treated Pakistan. And this has been their goal going back to, I believe, 1994 when we had the uh, agreed framework. So they're persistent. They have a goal. They have their objectives. And they pursue them with vigor. Uh, and I think we're seeing that right now. Even though we have the president meeting with uh, Kim Jong-un, three summits. Certainly the, uh, the DMZ meeting wasn't a summit, but it was... It was a significant, a seminal event where he actually entered into North Korea. We're still at this point now where North Korea is threatening, escalating, and making it very clear that they're not prepared to uh, uh, to move towards complete verifiable denuclearization. Why are they afraid? And I would just uh, throw that word in there. I'm assuming that's the operative word. Maybe reluctant is a better word, but why are they unwilling to give up their nuclear weapons? Nuclear weapons translates into survivor, survivability of the regime. This is their ticket for survival. And I say the regime, not necessarily the country, but uh, the regime. And this is the Kim family, Kim Jong-un and his close associates. So, yes, nuclear weapons uh, translates into survival. Uh, until they can get guarantees, uh, security guarantees, and all the other benefits, I think then they would consider, my view, with Kim Jong-un, considering moving towards uh, complete, verifiable denuclearization. But we're, we're far, far from that point right now, unfortunately, although we've had uh, a year plus where our president has met with uh, Kim Jong-un. We're far from that point. North Korea... Uh, looks at security as the, and it's understandable why security is the is their key priority. I mean, a country with uh, 5,000 years of history, 2,000 years of recorded history, over 500 invasions from big countries in that neighborhood, Japan, China, Mongolia, uh, they're, they're focused on being strong, and in this case, they're talking about a nuclear deterrent. If they have a nuclear deterrent, no one is going to mess with them. So they feel pretty secure right now because in 2017, they show they have a nuclear capability with their thermonuclear test. And they have success. The last was a thermonuclear event with the missiles that can deliver these uh, nuclear warheads to include an intercontinental ballistic missile. So they're feeling pretty good about themselves that they have a deterrent. So they can stand on their two feet, and they're not really overly, although they are concerned about U.S. working with the ROK and the ability to use strategic 
uh, forces to uh, to uh, affect their survival. They are concerned about that, but they but they know if, as long as they have nuclear weapons, uh, no one would dare move in that direction. Mm-hmm. So I think they feel time is on their side. It puts the ball in our court in a lot of ways. Because if they have that mentality, that time is on their side because they have the nuclear weapons, and we have to convince them to get rid of those nuclear weapons and make it attractive to get rid of those nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. uh, it's, going to be, it's going to be difficult. But, Ambassador, time may be on their side, but as you've mentioned, um, you know, they're looking for uh, a degree of uh, security, and they feel that this, this, this path that they're on can get it for them. But what about the path of launching these missiles, launching these rockets? And, um, you know, this is not restricted airspace, as I understand it, that they're launching these rockets in. There could be airplanes, you know, there could be commercial traffic there. Then there's also the point of launching them where they crash into the sea. And that does not seem to bode well for a country and uh, an enterprise that's looking at a secure future. Because if you knock a plane out of the sky or if you, 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 you bomb a ship... You know, um, and, 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 you know, we know that they've actually gone ahead in the past and and gotten very aggressive with with South Korea's military actually targeting military vessels, naval vessels in the past. But how does this behavior of launching missiles get them to the table uh, when they they seem to be proving that they're not really focused on safety and security of anybody else, maybe themselves, but not the rest of the world? So why would the world want to give them what they want? Well, they feel by having these missile launches, it's going to convince the United States, South Korea, Japan, and others uh, to seek them out and to make it attractive to them so that they would come to the table. Uh, And and what they're doing and what we're seeing now over the last two weeks uh, with the uh, the short-range ballistic missile launches, just uh, two days ago they launched two more of those short-range ballistic missiles, with the multiple rocket launcher uh, launches and uh, all in the sea of Japan. Uh, this is pretty significant. I think they're telling us and others uh, that you better talk to us and because we'll continue on this path. And maybe these will not be short-range ballistic missile launches. They'll be intermediate range and they'll be long range to include intercontinental ballistic missiles that touch the United States. So... Uh, I, I think they feel they have the sovereign right to launch missiles. They do often give maritime warnings to uh, to clear vessels from uh, uh, certain designated areas in the Sea of Japan at certain periods of time. So, and they feel that is in compliance with the United Nations regulations for countries that uh, put satellites in orbit and, and actually launch missiles. So I don't feel that they feel that they are acting uh, unlawfully when they uh, launch these missiles. Obviously, well, aren't they though? Because they're well, not supposed to have. They them. they are certainly they're in violation of UN Security Council resolutions, but they don't recognize those UN Security Council resolutions. They say this is infri- infringing on their sovereign right. So then you've sat across the table with them. How then can they not recognize that they're breaking the law? or international law, while trying to force the rest of the world to 
sit down at the table with them. What's where's their head? What's what's well? It? They, look, they're not members of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, so they're not obliged to uh, comply with the NPT uh, requirements. Uh, so they feel they can have nuclear tests. They can have uh, missile launches. They're, they they don't recognize the UN Security Council resolutions sanctioning North Korea when they started in, in, in if you will, 2006 with these launches. So they feel they're acting as a sovereign state, looking at their own national interests, and that's paramount for them. And their interests translate into survival of the regime. If they continue with these launches, accidents can happen, and... I'm just wondering, has this crossed your mind, or I guess a better question might be, how often does it cross your mind that they might actually make a mistake, and then what happens if they do make a mistake? That's exactly right. With that's these launches, exa- that's exactly what happens right. though? The ability to stumble into conflict on the Korean Peninsula is 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 very real, and it's becoming that much more intense as they continue to do what they've done over the last few weeks. There's no question about mm-hmm. that. The U.S. has been very patient. We saw the uh, last week where we had our Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, in, in Thailand for the ASEAN uh, Forum. North Korea boycotted that. I mean, at the last minute, Lee Jung ho their foreign minister, did not attend, nor did anyone from North Korea. This is a slight to the it's a, it's a slight to the United States, but to South Korea, but also to China and other countries that are saying, "What's wrong with you, Pyongyang?" The U.S. is reaching out to you. So in response, although we reach out to them, they launch missiles. Mm-hmm. And they say they're launching these missiles because we have a joint military uh, exercise with the Republic of Korea. We don't call it an exercise. We call it a training. We have, in this case, it's the combined command uh, tr- uh, training uh, uh, program that's going on as we speak. And this is to prepare, if you will, South Korea to take over when they have operational command of the combined forces, which is which is going to happen down the road. There's no question about that. So, but North Korea says that we don't we don't care that if this is this is computer simulated uh, training or exercise, uh, they feel it's uh, it's uh, an affront to them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, a very old wise journalist told me once that democracy is a really messy business, and you know. North Korea is not a democracy and apparently has no interest in being a democracy, but still the world is trying to treat them with democratic niceties, if you will, you know, trying not to offend and trying to lead by example. But I have to ask this question. The president has met with Kim Jong-un how many times? Three times? Three times. Do you see any progress with the way uh, he has been uh, working and treating and dealing with Kim Jong-un. You know, I think the president meeting with Kim Jong-un, which was uh, unexpected, and I think almost everyone said you shouldn't be doing it, a sitting president meeting with Kim Jong-un, especially after 2017 with the thermonuclear test and uh, an ICBM launch. And Mm -hmm. this is, this is, you you don't want to give him that, uh, that credit, uh, that visibility, and that uh, uh, that was a seminal event, and I, I I personally applaud what President Donald Trump did in meeting Kim Jong Un. I think he he said, "Look, nothing has worked over twenty five years, and I have an invitation." He passed it through the Republic of Korea, and I'll give it a shot. Nothing else has worked. We'll see if this works. So yes, 
North Korea for a period of time, well, almost 18 months. They haven't launched uh, ICBMs or intermediate-range missiles. They haven't had a nuclear test. And, they, and they've had these two summits and the DMZ uh, meeting. So, yeah, and, and there apparently is a good relationship between the president and Kim Jong-un. That is progress. That, that piece is progress. What hasn't progressed is North Korea <laughs> stopping what it's doing in the nuclear and missile areas. They, they continue to uh, fabricate uh, fissile material to build nuclear weapons, and they're moving forward with their missile systems to include what they did over the last two weeks, which is this short-range ballistic missile is solid fuel, mobile, Mm-hmm. And with the capabilities that could possibly evade a missile defense uh, capability that would monitor and intercept. Now, is this a new development that that particular rocket capability? Uh, the, the sense is this: the, the short-range ballistic missiles uh, certainly were mobile, and solid fuel, which means you know they can move anywhere, and it's it's not real; it's struck mobile, and solid fuel you could just fuel it up and. And launch it, mm-hmm. but if they're also capable of flying low and and varying the altitude, the ability to sort of uh, to evade a missile defense uh, system uh, becomes an issue. So yes, I think that's significant. That's a, is that a new capability for them? I think that would be a new capability for them and to include the ballistic missile submarines mm-hmm. that uh, Kim Jong Un uh, visited. How do they get the resources? To do this, because this is the poorest country on earth, or at least close to it, as I understand it. You know, there's there are many, many thousands of people, if not more, hundreds of thousands, I would say, that are starving in North Korea. How do they get, one, the money to uh, acquire the kinds of technology and the parts and the uh, the know-how to, to do this this kind of thing? Well, the know-how is from the former Soviet Union and the Russian Federation currently, and China, also Pakistan, AQ Khan. I mean, they've reached out in the past to build a capability. Many of their, many of their scientists trained in, in Moscow. Uh, China is, is also on that. But really, Moscow, when it comes to missile capability. So, yeah, they've trained a lot of scientists. Uh, they had significant programs. Uh, where did they get the money? Look. JJ, uh, North Korea, I mean, the people in North Korea, as you correctly stated, uh, really put up with great hardship. There is significant, over 40% malnourishment throughout the country. The provinces are really hurting significantly. The money that comes into the country goes to the elites and goes into their missile and nuclear programs. Where does that money come from? Some of it is is legal, legitimate from from trade because they do fisheries and textiles and uh, precious metals and things of that sort. Some of it is illicit, illicit where they where they uh, counterfeit uh, drugs, they counterfeit cigarettes, they were counterfeiting a one hundred dollar note, where they uh, are very much into the illicit business. So it's a mixture of. Uh, of illicit and illicit activities that generate the revenue that goes to the elites, the leadership that goes into their nuclear missile programs, and also into the elites living well. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you have sat across the table from North Korean negotiators. And, um, you know, as we sort of look to put some context on where we're going from here, you've, you've very eloquently set the scene for us, you know, how we got here and what the North Koreans are thinking and 
We know what they're doing. But looking at the future, you've sat across the table from the North Koreans and you did it for years and you knew some North Koreans who were of great influence in the country. Uh, And I'm very interested in figuring out and hearing you perhaps give us some insight into the people, what you know about the people that are now on the North Korean team and their interest in actually making this work their interest in actually arriving at a solution Um, because the complete verifiable denuclearization part appears to be the sticking point and they don't seem to be willing to do it. Is this coming from the people at the table, you think, or is this coming from Kim Jong-un himself? I think it's coming from Kim Jong-un. I mean, Kim Jong-un is taking guidance and, and uh, from his uh, Ministry of State Security, Public Security, from the Korean People's Army, and some from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our contacts, my contacts, have always been pri- primarily with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I think these people want a good relationship with the United States. I think their foreign minister, Lee Jung-ho, who knows the United States, he goes back to the agreed framework in 1994. He's very articulate. I think he wants to see progress. I think his vice foreign minister, uh, uh, Che Sony, uh, who's worked with the United States again since the beginning of the six-party talks in 2003, I think she does want to move forward on that. Uh, you know, I, 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 uh, Kim Gae-Gwan and Yigun and all these other people, I think they're, they're invested in eventually having a good, normal relationship with the United States. I do feel that they want to move in that direction. They know us well, and they know we don't have any, we don't aspire to territory. We're not out to sort of uh, uh, invade the country, dictate to the country. I think, in my personal view, and this pro- probably this would not go well in, 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 in Pyongyang, hearing that, but, but they're hard negotiators, and, 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 but they want a good relationship, but they also want a good relationship <laughs> with nuclear weapons. Hmm. And they really feel, why can't you, the United States, accept the fact, as you do with, uh, with Pakistan and, and certainly India and Israel, why can't you just accept the fact that we could be a good friend of the United States? We'll have a few, we won't even build more, just, we'll, we could even cap a program, possibly, they Never put it in that ter- in those terms, but but accept us as a nuclear weapon state, and they're hearing very clearly, and I think justifiably was saying no, we can have a good relationship, and we'll give you the security assurances, but not as a nuclear weapon state. The possibility of nuclear proliferation in the region is great. The possibility of a, a nuclear weapon or fissile material getting into the hands of a a terrorist, a non-state terrorist actor, is that much greater with more countries like North Korea having nuclear weapons, producing fissile material. So I think intellectually they understand where we are on that. And I think this is the uh, conundrum for Kim Jong-un, because I think Kim Jong-un also wants a good relationship with the United States. That's why he's so happy beating President Donald Trump. He sees movement in that area. But he's also being told by people who are whispering in his ear or telling him straight, uh, you can have both you can have both persist. We've been working this for 25 years. Stay the course, and and we, 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 we will get there. And eventually, we'll get a normal relationship. And that's part of the Singapore joint statement of 12 June 2018, when the first bullet is a transformation of the bilateral relationship. They want that, and they feel they can get that. And then the second one is a peace treaty. Yeah, we'll end the Korean War. That's 
and they want that. And then it would be what you just said, complete verifiable denuclearization. And they'll, and that's where the hang-up is. And that's why, look, a, f- a few months ago, JJ, mm-hmm. in uh, Hanoi, Kim Jong-un put on the table what? He put on the, on the table Yongbyon. Yongbyon has been on the table some time. It was on the table for the agreed framework in 1994, the joint statement of the Six-Party Talks in September 2005. Yongbyon's there. What we're saying and what the president had said to Kim Jong-un, you have more than Yongbyon. We're talking about all of your nuclear weapons mm-hmm. and all of your nuclear weapons facilities. That's that's where we have to persist and we have to be very, very clear in showing that we will not vacillate. We will not, we will not sort of succumb to any uh, promises from North Korea that you know they would be a responsible nuclear uh, weapon state, et cetera. If we stay the my personal view is if we stay the course, but we indeed give them the security assurances. And that would be negative security assurance. We won't attack, invade, a normal relationship, bilateral, economic development assistance, access to international financial markets. I think that's an, an inducement to Kim Jong-un. But but right now, I think where Kim Jong-un now, what well, we saw over the last two weeks is, is he feels the small deal that he put on the table should be enough for the U.S. right now. Mm-hmm. And that should be enough for us to lift sanctions to move on a normal relationship, to move with the peace treaty. And he's persisting with that. We have to convince him that that's not going to work. Has the U.S. sent the wrong message to him and to uh, the people on his team um, by anything that has been done either from the White House or or the negotiators or otherwise uh, that essentially gives them the idea that they can do that, that they can actually, instead of understanding that when the U.S. team says complete verifiable denuclearization, they mean it, that no, we're not saying that for you to offer a counter or a peace or this is not a bargain situation. Um, This has to be what we get from you in order for you to get what you want. Has the U.S., made any mistake in uh, anything it's done to suggest that this is possible for North Korea to keep offering this even after being told multiple times? Or is this just uh, hard-headedness? Or is this, forgive me for using such harsh language, or is this just um, North Korea uh, and its leaders and its leader and its the members of his team simply uh, just being arrogant? I think there's a little of all of the above there. <laughs> I think hard-headedness and an element of uh, hubris, arrogance, it's it's all there. But I also think if we, uh, I think correctly, uh, so a few months ago or over a year ago, we, when the freeze was proposed by China and Russia, we said we weren't interested in a freeze, we're interested in complete revival denuclearization. And then the come the comeback on that would be well we we'll just freeze it, and then as we get uh, more uh, of a relation, there's more trust in the relationship, we can then sort of progress. And I feel that would be a slippery slope. I think that would be a terrible mistake to make. Mm-hmm. We uh, we have to see we have to have agreement on the ultimate objective, and that's complete, as you said, verifiable denuclearization. If we have that, certainly we we have to stop the programs, and it would be incremental, 
And I do believe North Korea makes a point when they say, if you expect us to, on our own, dismantle all our nuclear weapons and give up our nuclear weapons facilities before you do anything to the United States, and then you would sort of move towards a normal relationship and start lifting sanctions. I think we're we're drinking (laughs) somebody's tea here. Uh, North Korea's not going to agree with that. I mean, they they want something... Uh, they simultaneous. They want something immediate. So there has to be, I do believe, an action for action, commitment for commitment, uh, a relationship with North Korea. As they move towards complete verifiable denuclearization, they will get the benefits and they need to see that. And I think my personal view, again, I think Kim Jong-un, this is the, this is the predicament for Kim Jong-un. Can I get what my advisors are telling me uh, uh is achievable, mm-hmm. which is the U.S. Uh, accepting us as a, uh, at least accepting the fact that uh, we can retain some nuclear weapons as we move towards a closer relationship with the United States and then negotiate our other weapons and our other facilities. Or, and he has to contend with this issue, or will the U.S. be adamant that unless we have a final agreement that speaks to complete verifiable denuclearization, we will not have any progress towards a normal relationship or a peace treaty or any economic development assistance. And do you believe the U.S. will stick by the latter? I think we have to. And I think if we vacillate, if we show any, any um, lack of commitment to that ultimate correct objective, I think the North Koreans will seize on it because those who are opposed to complete verifiable denuclearization in North Korea, are telling Kim Jong-un, I, I'm convinced, telling Kim Jong-un, you can get it. Mm-hmm. Last thing, part of what North Korea, to me, seems to be doing by launching the, the missiles that it's launched in the last couple of weeks, you know, this being the uh, 6th of August 2019, is saying, you know, we've got this weapon, you know, and, uh, you know, people know what missiles do. Missiles are weapons of war. Uh, And in some ways, it seems to me that they're saying, we've got bigger weapons. We've got, there's a possibility of us using something much more lethal. And in the past, North Korea has threatened the U.S., threatened to attack the U.S. in the past. The thing that I'd like to ask you as we finish this up, is North Korea is is North Korea really willing to launch an attack on the US or anywhere in the world? JJ, I I strongly believe North Korea and certainly their leadership uh, is not suicidal. Any attack against the United States or an ally uh, or partner, I think would uh, would would uh, generate a a significant response, certainly from the United States. So, uh, and indeed, any attack on the United States or an ally part. No, I I, I think Kim Jong-un and those around him understand that uh, their survival is paramount. Uh, they, they, I'm, Kim Jong-un is a young man. He wants to live another 40, 50 years. Uh, If they did something like that, it would be suicidal. Mm -hmm. However, Going back to one of your first questions, stumbling into something, 
where they feel that they, there's the possibility of, uh, of, of a preventive strike going against North Korea, where there may be uh, some, uh, if you will, effort to affect regime change in North Korea. A situation like that could generate North Korea responding, saying that, look, if they're coming after us and coming after me, Kim Jong-un, and my, and my uh, colleagues here, I'm just not going to sit here and take the, take the hit. I'm going to respond. So uh, I think them initiating something would be suicidal when they see it as suicidal. I think the possibility of stumbling into conflict from miscalculation, miscommunications is becoming even greater now because of the uh, of the greater capabilities they have to really inflict damage. And I thought what I think what they showed over the last two weeks is those short range ballistic missiles are targeted against what? Targets in South Korea. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously our our base is there, Osan Air Force Base, uh, Camp Humphreys, and the uh, and and just the population over twenty million in Seoul. All very vulnerable to what they showed over the last two weeks. So they're very very—they're making it very clear there would be a price to pay if we try to affect regime change, if we try to do something to prevent the nature, which threaten the survivability of their regime. But I don't believe they would unilaterally precipitate something knowing that it would be the end of that regime. Ambassador, great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you Anything uh, you think is important that we haven't asked you about as it relates to this? I think we have to be resolute. We have to stay the course, but there has to be a point where we can't keep turning our cheek. Uh, I think they uh, they were insulting to our Secretary of State by not showing up in in, in Thailand. I think they've been overly critical uh, of this uh, joint uh, uh, training exercise that we have going on now. I think they've been intolerant with some of the language they've been using, despite the fact that our our president, a sitting president, has had two summits and actually a DMZ meeting where there was a commitment on the part of Kim Jong-un to start working-level negotiations. What North Korea needs to do, what North Korea needs to do is to start working-level negotiations, whether it's uh, Vice Foreign Minister Che Sun-hee or someone else. They need to be meeting with Steve Began and talking about the possibility of coming up with an agreement, as we did in September 2005 with the joint statement from the Six-Party Talks, an agreement that will speak to, again, the Singapore Joint Statement of 12 June 2018, where both our president and Chairman Kim Jong-un agreed a transformation of a relationship, peace treaty, but the core issue, complete, verifiable denuclearization. Ambassador Joe Detrani, former U.S. ambassador, or rather former U.S. envoy for the six-party talks with North Korea and former U.S. director of the National Counterproliferation Center, one of the most, if not the most, knowledgeable voices on the North Korea problem that you'll hear. Thank you for being with Thank us. Thank you, JJ. That's it for this program. Coming up in our next episode. Now please join me in welcoming Philip Maud and J.J. Green. An unusual event, Target USA, recorded before a live audience. We were with former CIA and FBI Deputy Director Philip Mudd discussing his new book, Black Sight, at Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C. When the towers fell on September 11th, 2001, nowhere were the reverberations more powerfully felt than at CIA headquarters in Langley. Almost overnight, 
the intelligence organization evolved into a war-fighting intelligence service, constructing what was known internally as the program. We weren't prepared for what happened. We were an organization dedicated to recruiting people to be traitors to their organization or their country. Having those people talk to us about what was happening in places like China and Russia. And all of a sudden, somebody said, maybe we actually have to detain prisoners and conduct aggressive interrogations. The book is called Black Sight, the CIA in the post 9-11 world, a Target USA episode recorded before a live audience. Coming up on our next edition. Thank you for listening to Target USA. I invite you to subscribe. If you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email at jgreen, the letter J, the color green, that's one word, at WTOP.com. That's Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. That's jgreen at WTOP.com. Also, follow us on Twitter. And also, I invite you to check out my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff. It's a weekly national and international security newsletter. You can sign up by going to WTOP.com slash alerts and click the third option, which is Inside the Skiff. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Want a podcast? Do you have a podcast? Then check out Launchpad DM, powered by Podcast One. Launchpad DM is a totally free platform and service for anyone who wants to podcast, offering unlimited hosting and access to a dashboard with all of your show's analytics. You own and control everything, including subscribers, and it's a great discovery tool to help people find your podcast. You may even get invited to join the official Podcast One roster with even more perks like access to producers, marketers, sales teams, and more. Sign up today at launchpaddm.com. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.